If you have your Bibles, please open them to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. This is one of my favorite psalms, especially being a person who loves to read church history. I go to the psalm often to kind of understand God's plan in church history. If you'll read with me, I'm going to read the entire Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all our sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. I think in this psalm, we see... The psalmist desiring revival for the people of Israel. And hopefully you who are of the church of the living God of Christ desire revival for the church today. So we're going to take a few minutes to look at some of the the actions that those that desire revival should do as we look for revival But also know that this is not some magical formula that if we do these things, God will send revival. Because God is still in control of those things. He's still sovereign over those things. He works through these things. These are his means of bringing his plan about. But we do not manipulate God. I once heard a story about a new evangelist who was really getting his feet wet and... Um, being an evangelist, and he wanted opportunities to preach in churches. So he called one of his pastor friends and said, Hey, is it all right? I'm a new evangelist now, and I'd like to come and preach revival in your church. His pastor friend responded, No, Joe, you're not ready. So a few weeks passed. And the evangelist decides one more time to try to call his friend and see if there's an opportunity for him to be able to preach revival in his church. He calls again, and the pastor friend says, No, Joe, you're not ready. 
So a couple of months pass. And by this time, this new evangelist is fairly desperate. So he calls his pastor friend one last time and says, Pastor, I'm so ready to come preach to your church that I'll do anything. In fact, you don't have to pay me. No honorarium. I'll come and preach for you. The pastor said, well, now, Joe, I think you're ready. And so it's a humorous story about someone that wanted to come preach revival. But the question we have to ask is, can a man truly preach revival? Before we ask that question, though, we have to ask, what is revival? Because there's a lot of misconceptions about revival today. I don't know about you, but growing up, the church that I was involved in had revival services just about every year. And they called them revival services. And some of you may be familiar with, with the, the terminology that churches used to use. They would have some special evangelist or, or special preacher, and he would come and preach, and they'd have special music. And usually the sermons had some kind of evangelistic um, theme to them. And the idea was this man would come and preach and, and people would come to salvation and there'd be a great revival in the church. These ideas of meetings that would go on for maybe a week or two actually um, came out earlier in our early Baptist fathers in the 19th century had what was called protracted meetings. I know B.H. Carroll um, and George Truett here in Texas would have protracted meetings. And back home in Georgia, P.H. Mel would have protracted meetings in which they would have a, a week-long series of messages. And certainly those people desired to see revival in the church, but they didn't quite presume to call them revival meetings. It kind of dates back to some degree to the Second Great Awakening and, and how they would have evangelistic services out in the middle of woods and they would clear the trees and they would set up camp because people would travel from, from even a hundred miles away to come and hear the preaching. And a lot of these preachers would be very um, animated and loud and, and preaching about God's judgment and I think God did use this to save many, but there were also some false preachers, I think, in it that used manipulation to stir up people's emotions, to get them to respond to the message. And then years later, those people that were supposedly converted were never seen in the church again. So we must be careful not to call our meetings, revival meetings, just because we think if we automatically do these things and, and we, we follow this, God is going to send revival because that misunderstands what the meaning of revival actually is. One of my favorite definitions of revival was given by a man named N. Murray. And he says this, a revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit brought about by the intercession of Christ resulting in a new degree of life in the churches and a widespread movement of grace among the unconverted. So basically, God is the one to do the revival. He's the one that starts it. He's the one that completes it. And he does so because Christ has 
interceding for his people, his church, the people that he has died for. And as a result, those that are Christians in the church, they get a new zeal for the work. They, they recapture their passion for the, the, the preached word and the ministry and evangelism. And then those people outside the church that do not know Christ, that do not attend church, they're won over by these people in their, their gospel witness. We are at a time, I think, in our own history of our own country that Christianity seems to be in decline around us, at least the influence of Christianity. I know when I was growing up, just about everybody you knew that were neighbors of you, they went to church. And you didn't have to say, do you go to church? Because you knew that they went to church. They may not be Christians. They may not go to a, a good, sound church. But most people were churchgoers, at least where I came from. But we don't have that today. In fact, most people in my surrounding county don't go to church anymore because it's not cultural anymore. It is, is something that ha has disappeared. And so I think it's safe to say Christianity is definitely in decline in, in our country. Now, there are bright spots throughout the world. There, I think there are growing churches like in China and elsewhere. But it seems that we are entering a, a deadness to some degree. There, there are still pockets of truth. There are still pockets where the gospel is being preached and the word is truly divided and, and taught and preached within the pulpit. But by and large, even in churches that are meeting this morning and this afternoon, I did it, I was thinking this morning and it's this afternoon, but churches that are meeting today, there's lots of them that are not even preaching the word anymore. And, and so if there's ever a time in our country's history, and there have been times in the past, but I think particularly now we need revival. We need to see God's hand at work if we want the church to be blessed. And, and certainly, if you're a Christian, it saddens you to see the state of the church around us. We love the church because the church is the bride of Christ. The people that Christ died for. The people that Christ, in covenantal love, was sent to die for because there's a covenant that God established in the Godhead to save us and to bring us into his people. And in Psalm 85, I think... The psalmist was witnessing such a time in the people of Israel. They had declined. God was exhibiting his anger toward the people of Israel because they had departed from his ways. They didn't care about the things of the Lord. And therefore, the psalmist desired revival. And if we as Christians in our own nation desire revival... I think we can get, gather some good lessons from the psalmist and what he, he prays and what he does here. Now again, this is not a magical formula. If we do these things, it's still in God's hands. But God is a God who works through means. In fact, to save a soul, God has chosen to use the preaching of the word. 
not that I deserve to preach the word or any preacher behind a pulpit with an open Bible deserves to preach or to see souls won under their preaching. But God has chosen to use human means to accomplish his purposes. Glory be to God that he uses earthen vessels like us preachers to preach the gospel. But we'll see four things that the psalmist does here that I think are a good indication. If we truly desire revival, these are the things that we should do. Well, the first of these, we are to remember God's work of revival. We're to remember God's work of revival. And we see that in verses 1 through 3. Read those again with me. Notice it's all past tense. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So here we have the psalmist. What's he doing? He's looking in the past. He's looking back at God's work. And he says, God... You've done these great things in the past. We read about Moses and the Israelites and what you did among them and and, and Joshua and all that. You did great wonders. You restored your people. When when they were departing from you, you raised up godly leaders and, and, and others that came to the people and spoke your word. And you restored your favor to them. You've done these things. And God, you are not a God who changes You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You were merciful, and you still are merciful to your people. He restored the fortunes of Jacob in the past. Now, most scholars in commenting on on this passage believe this is probably in reference to the exile when they were in Babylon, and they were able to come back to the land that God had given them. But... Regardless of the time period, God was constantly restoring his people. Constantly they would sin and go against God and God would bring in an oppressor or cause some kind of pestilence or something. And then they would realize their dependence on God and and repent and cry out and God would be merciful to his people. And so God was a restoring God. He was a God that would bring the people back to the point of blessing that they had lost because of their sin. Often, they would lose possession of the land that they they had, or they would have their crops destroyed. And I think for the physical people of Israel, God was using this as a a picture of the church, of, of spiritual Israel, but indeed, God restored the land many times. He caused the crops to grow again. He caused caused them to re-inhabit their homes that had been forsaken and all that sort of thing. We have to remember too, though, God is in the restoring business for the things that we lose as the church or the things that we lose individually when we go our own way and and we fall back into our sin or, or do something. God restores us. We see this in our own lives at times. We see this in the life of the church. I think the Puritans were a godly group of people. I think they got some things wrong. 
But I think they had a heart for the Bible. And they had a heart for ministry. And they had a heart for preaching the Word of God. And they were very strong. And yet, God blessed them as they came to our country. And they had lots of wealth and prosperity. And yet, the next generation or two, they were going to church, but they were dead in those pews. And they had no heart for God. And yet, God had ministers faithfully preach His Word. And because of that... He restored them at times. The, the restoration of God's people, though, we see is founded upon two things that God gives his people. In verse 2, the forgiveness of their iniquities. And in verse 3, the withdrawal of his wrath. Now, as churches grow dead, and the makeup of the churches, uh, whether it's members or people that just attend that are lost, God saves them. And the reason God will restore things to them in the future is because they are part of God's chosen people. The foundation of God's blessing on the church is the fact that they are saved sinners, that God has forgiven them. And this is a great work. If we think about this, um, God has chosen to forgive us. And I think any time that the church really starts to appreciate the forgiveness we have in Christ, it's a sign that God is starting to stir up our hearts in revival. After all, sometimes we grow so concerned with our livelihoods or our families or what's going on in culture around us, we don't even think about the forgiveness that God has brought to us. And yet, what a precious gift. If we were to truly be thankful and grateful, what that would stir within us. It reminds me of a quote of James Montgomery Boyce. He says, If God gives us good health, a happy and supportive family, a good job, and praise from our employer and friends, we think we are blessed. If we lack any one of these things, we begin to suppose that God has somehow forgotten us and does not care for us. We do not think how blessed we are to have our sins forgiven and to be delivered from the judicial wrath of God through the atoning death of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 2 and 3 tell us the very thing that is the greatest treasure that God brings His people. Forgiveness and turning away his wrath. If we were to just dwell upon this and think about the preciousness of salvation and forgiveness that we have in Christ, it should stir our love up for our Savior. It should cause us to want to leave and and follow our Savior and be made more in the image of Christ and be renewed in that image. We should desire our Bibles and desire the preaching of the Word and desire prayer even more so. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said on our happy condition and forgiveness. He says, all of it, every spot and wrinkle, the veil of love has covered all. Sin has been divinely put out of sight, covering it with the sea of atonement, blotting it out, making it to cease to be. The Lord has put it so completely away that even his omniscient eye sees it no more. What a miracle is this, 
To cover up the sun would be easy work compared with the covering up of sin. What a covering does the Lord Jesus' blood afford? So, as God's people, let us remember the preciousness of the gift that we've been given. That Christ bought us with a price. That his blood has made atonement for our sins. And that we are a forgiven people. And then let us look back at God's work of revival in the past. God was so great to the church and so good to the church. He promised he would never abandon his people. That he would always preserve a remnant. And that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. He has kept that promise in the past. If we see that clearly, we should know that he's faithful to keep his promises to us as people today. So that turns us to the second action. And that is, we are to pray for God to work revival again. We see that in verses 4 through 7. Notice the shift in tense. He goes from talking about what God has done in the past to praying what he will do in the future. Verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So the psalmist goes from looking back, that inspires him to to be confident that God has not changed. That what God has done in the past for his people, he will still continue to do for his people in the present. He prays for God to restore his people. Thankfully, God is a restoring God. That we may have lost many blessings as a church in the land, but God has a way of bringing fruit from dry ground. He gives life to dry bones. And this is a good picture of salvation, but it's also a good picture of what he does for churches. He brings new life to them. The psalmist asks a simple, a, a series of questions that have simple answers. We know what these answers are. They're almost hypothetical questions, aren't they? He says in verse 5, Will God be angry with his people forever? What's the obvious answer there? Certainly not. The next question, will God prolong his anger to all generations? Certainly not. God is a God who's quick to forgive. God says he's, a, he's slow to anger. But when his people repent, and repentance itself is a gift from God, but when they do so and they turn back to God, God is quick to restore them. It is like the prodigal son who comes back to his father. His father goes out and runs to embrace him. And that's the same story for any sinner that comes to God. But I believe it's also a picture of the church when we repent of our sins and we seek after God. That is the movement of the Holy Spirit and God delights to restore such a church. 
it goes to the meaning, really, of revival. The psalmist says, will you, revive, will you not revive us again? Obviously, the people needed revival. What does to revive something mean? It literally means to make something that was dead, that was once living, alive again. And so when we pray for revival, we see deadness entering the churches and we pray for new life. We pray for God to restore life to the church and to our people. And God does this when he sends a mighty revival. Throughout the ages, we see this time after time after time in church history where something else is replacing the gospel of God in the church. It may be a gospel of works in which we think we can earn our salvation. God has sent revival to those churches in the past. And he's sent people that have preached the word in those churches. And sometimes God restores those churches. Sometimes, according to God's will, some churches go apostate and and never come back. Yet, there are people that God preserves out of those churches. He brings them out and he gives new life to his people in revival. There are times in which immorality has been allowed to run amok in the church. And yet God has, through the preaching of the word, brought about reformation in in those churches. And and they have gone against immorality and instituted church discipline. He may have had to chasten the church at times, but he brings a revival. Because we're told the church is the holy bride of Christ. And the church will be presented to Christ when he returns. And it will be holy and pure. God will not abandon us. He will see us to revival. He will preserve us. Now, most of the time when you think of revivals, you think about the lost being won and and the gospel being preached and people being saved. And, and many unbelievers from the outside coming in and becoming part of the church again. And that is part of the revival, but usually that is the end result of revival, where revival usually starts as in the church itself. What will happen, and this is portrayed in the Bible, but it's also portrayed in church history, is there will be true biblical preaching. God will raise up ministers to preach the word of God and be faithful to it. Not to water it down just to to, to make people happy to be in church. Because if, if you get people in church just because they feel good about being there, you end up with false conversions. And then you end up increasing the deadness of the church. But true biblical preaching brings conviction of sin. And it brings open the eyes that were shut And it changes the hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. It happens to to members of churches that were not true Christians. But it also inflames the Christians that are there to new life and zeal and and passion as, as they see God at work. That's the reason you need the preaching of the word. If, If you're not in church under the ministry of the preaching of the word your heart grows cold and dead. And that's something we do not need. 
Notice in verse 6, revival brings joy. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The natural result of God stirring his people up and bringing in the lost is much joy. Don't you want to see joy in every church throughout the land? As we see God's hand at work reviving his people and bringing in the lost. If that doesn't cause you joy, I don't know what would as one of God's people. We are a rejoicing people when we see God at work. May he revive us and may it cause us to rejoice greatly. People who are God's people delight in the worship of God. And when there's revival, people are worshiping. They're desiring to sing hymns. They're desiring to come in and hear the preaching of the word. They're desiring to be involved in corporate praying and in the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. They want to see these things. And when they see these things, they rejoice. I may have mentioned it to some of you, but I grew up on a farm. And we had a small herd of cattle. And during the summer months, everything was good because it would rain and the pastures would be green and the grass would grow and the cows would go out and, and eat to their heart's content. But then when you got to the winter, the grass would turn brown and, and dry up and the cows would get hungry. And my father and I would get in our truck and we would put a few bells of hay in the back and some range cubes and we'd drive out to the pasture. Before we'd even get there, we'd do it at the same time every day. They would gather at the gate, ready and eager for us to go in and break open a few bells and put some ranch cubes down. And then they would eat and they would be so enthusiastic because they had become so hungry to be fed. Well, during revival, the people of God are the same way. You don't have to ask God's people to come to church when God is moving in their hearts. They desire, they need to be fed. They're hungry for the word of God. And this is where it's at. If they can hear preaching, that is the best place for them. You don't have to invite the people of God when God is sending a revival. And yet, when they are stirred up, when they are being fed, when they are being satisfied with the word of God, they go out and live as Christians in their communities. And the people of the world see them. And they notice. And they'll ask questions. And they'll wonder, what is different? And why can't I have that in my own broken life? And then they will come and they'll be drawn. And they will hear the preaching of the word. And God will open their hearts. Their eyes will be opened and they will see for the first time. And their hearts that were so stony and, and resistant to God will be made hearts of flesh and willing to believe and have faith and to repent.
And that's what happens when God sends revival. What is the basis of this psalmist's prayer for revival? When he's praying to God, does he plead the people's righteousness? Oh God, we are a righteous people, therefore send us revival. Does he plead, hey God, we are repenting, send us revival. God, we're praying, send us revival. He does not make those things which are human actions the basis of his plea. What does he say? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. The reason God will send revival to his people is his covenantal love. The Hebrew word here for steadfast love is hesed. It is the the love that God has for his people that he establishes and promises solemnly that he will never break. And we as the people of God, we are his elect. We are his chosen ones. And God will never break his love for the church. And so if we are to pray for God to send revival, we make it based on the promises of God that he said he would love his church, that he would speak to his people, and that he would show them his salvation. The psalmist knew that, and that's the reason he makes God's covenantal love the basis of his prayer here. Thirdly, we are to wait for God's work of revival. The psalmist knew that God would never forsake his covenant and that he would love his people. And he was confident that God would answer his prayers. So look at verses 8 and 9. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. The psalmist prayed based upon God's covenantal love. And he knew that God is not one that would break his promises. And so he then decides to wait for the Lord to answer. He knew that God would be faithful and love his people and save them. Notice, he speaks peace to his people, to his saints. Again, these are definitely the people of God. These are the ones that have been chosen that God will speak peace to. There have been churches that have strayed from the gospel and God has judged them. We see this in the New Testament. There were those that departed from John's church and John and the, the apostle writing to that church in the first epistle of John says, they departed from you because they were not of you. There are people that sometimes end up in the keep of God that are not of his flock. And yet, his people, God would not forsake. He will bring them restoration and revival. Notice also, but let them not turn back to folly. Sometimes we pray for things, but we're impatient. If God doesn't provide an instantaneous answer to our prayers, we think he's not listening. 
or even worse, we lose faith that he's capable of answering those prayers or that he would even answer them if he was able. But that's a lack of faith. That's unbelief. Truly, we as his people, if God starts to send revival to us and we turn from our sins, true repentance means we do not return to our folly of of old. We have left those things. And we may slide back into them. We may fall. But we do not stay in those things. Let us, if we truly want to see revival, let us pray, but be confident that God will bring it about. He will not be unanswering forever. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Another sign that God is about to bring revival is when reverent worship is established. Those that fear God, it says salvation is near to them. It says that salvation is about to come, that glory may dwell in our land. God will cause his people to worship when he's sending revival. There's a respect for God's word. There's a respect for his presence. And it's not some kind of flippant, nonchalant worship. When you see God's glory exhibited in the Bible, what do the people do? They fall down on their faces in reverence. It's not silly. You know you're in the presence of a holy God. That should inspire worship in your heart. But it's a worship of a holy God who's magnificent and deserves complete and utter reverence. It's not entertainment when we are worshiping. It is coming before God and giving him the worth that he's due. Well, the psalmist had put his quiet confidence that God's message would be one of peace. It'd be one of salvation. Then fourth, we're to realize what God's work of revival entails. We see what the the psalmist pictures the revival would entail in the last four verses of Psalm 85, verses 10 through 13. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. When revival comes, the attributes of God are clearly seen. Because the gospel is clearly seen. Where do the attributes of God come all together? And we see them exhibited. It's on the cross. Where's the righteousness of God? He judges sin. He's a holy, perfect God. And he must have wrath upon sin. He's not going to overlook our sin. That sin must be punished. And yet there was one place in history that that sin for his people was punished. It was in Christ. And it's there we see his love. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness, righteousness and peace kiss each other. 
there on the cross. So when God sends revival, we see the gospel. We see that Christ satisfied the wrath of God, but he also displays the love and mercy of God all together at the same time. He chose to bore the wrath that was due our sin, but it was to give us his righteousness. He was faithful to do the work that his father had given them to do. And yet he did it on our behalf to save us, his people. We are his covenant people. We're the ones he displays his love to. And we ought to glory in the cross. What a perfect picture we have of the attributes of God coming together for us. His wrath and holiness and his love and mercy. They're not opposed to one another. They actually meet each other in embrace on the cross. That's what the gospel is. And notice as a result, God gives what is good and the land will yield its increase. Now, as a nation of Israel, when God hears the request for revival sent, God would restore the fortunes of national Israel. The crops would grow again. The the people would have peace again. And yet, that's just a picture of what it's like for the church. When we are restored, when we have revival, God causes the land to yield its increase. Around us, the fields are white unto harvest. And when God brings about revival, we see the increase of his people. There are more tongues to sing his praises in church because he has bought for for himself a people from every nation and tribe and tongue. We represent that today here in this church. And there are others that God will bring in from the harvest fields. So I hope today, maybe we as a people are inspired to pray and seek revival just as the psalmist did. Let us start by looking back at the past and God's great work of revival that he's done. Read biographies of those that were involved in revivals like George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards. Read books about revival. But may these things that we see that God has done in the past not be just for history's sake, but because he's the same God then as he is now. May it cause us to pray today desperately that God would not abandoning his people because he will not. He has promised in his covenant to love his people and preserve a remnant. So based on that, let us pray that God will send revival to us, that he would restore his church, and that he would cause his gospel to go out to all lands so that people from every tribe and tongue and nation would gather around together to praise the Lord. That is the end goal of history. And he has bought for himself a people, the church. May he give us a hunger for his word. May he cause us to anticipate the glory of his future coming, but also a foretaste of that glory when he sends revival today. And may we as his people look forward to the day that he sends revival and praise his name for it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, how holy your name is. You deserve the worship of every living soul. Lord, we know that you have bought for yourself a people, that you established a covenant and love eternally for your people. 